We've been looking, uh, had a couple of weeks there, at, uh, looking at uh, John chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, sort of looked at uh, the, the climax of the story, the, the height of the chapter last week, as we got to that point where Jesus staring at the tomb and all the Jews standing around, everybody's crying, and Mary and Martha are there, and, and he, he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And all of a sudden, this rustling goes on in the tomb, and they hear stuff going on, and this guy, this mummy, staggers out. And Jesus has to remind them to unbind him and let him go. He is, they're paralyzed. Their jaws are on the ground. I mean, uh, I've mentioned before, it, it, we look at these things, we see the end. We know that Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead, right? I mean, it's one of the famous Bible stories in the New Testament and all. And yet, these people are living it. And, and so there, on this little hillside outside of Bethany, where they'd gone to the tomb, this guy stumbles out, and Jesus literally has to tell them, take off the bandages. The guy, he's packed. His body was embalmed. And, and so uh, we see in that, that that it was just an amazing scene. And prior to that, remember, Jesus had gotten word that Lazarus was sick, and he was down at Bethabara, the, or Bethany beyond the Jordan, the place where he was baptized by John the Baptist, and, and, and that he waits a couple of days before he does anything. By the time he gets to Bethany, it's four days since Lazarus died. And, and it tells us in, in the narrative that when he gets to the tomb, that Martha says, eh, Lord, you might not want to roll that stone away. It's pretty stinky. And they're probably, uh, well, we know that he would have been in a state of serious decomposition. And yet Jesus does. But the other interesting thing leading up to that is that every time Jesus has dialogue with someone, they say, hey, you know, if you'd have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. He, he's, they, Mary, or Martha says that to him first. She sees him on the road on the way up to town. He's not in town yet. And, and she tracks him down and, and she basically, and he tells her the famous words that we know and love about Jesus. He says, I am, the, the name for God, the resurrection and the life. I'm not just, this isn't just a doctrinal understanding. The reason why he delayed was because he wanted to get these people to elevate their thinking above doctrine. They believed he was Messiah. These are people that are believers. But he says a couple of times in the passage that you may believe. So what do you mean? Believe on top of believe? No, it's that your faith would be enlarged. Very often the Lord takes us to places that he challenges us. He challenges our thinking. He allows us to get into circumstances or to go through situations where he challenges us that our faith would be enlarged. It's, it, you know, so often over the years I've shared with people, uh, are you in a place in your walk with the Lord where you can fill in the blank, will you trust me even though, or even when, or even if? Fill in the blank, folks. We go through things, don't we? We go through a lot. Uh, my heart broke for my wife this morning as she was hearing about, and we're excited that Terry's about ready to go to heaven. Um, you know, here's a woman, 87 years old. She came to Christ at 86. And then it's like the Lord waited, the grace of God waited in this woman's life for 86 years. And then at 87, he says, well, you're mine. Come on, I'm taking you home. And, and yet Terry, or Stacy's developed such a bond with Terry and uh, this feisty little lady that just, you know, she's just ornery and we love her ornery, I mean, in a good way. And, and we're going to miss her. And so, but there's this, is, are you going to trust me even if I was praying for Terry this morning over the phone, Stacy put it on speaker and put it up to her ear and, and, and we're just, just praying for God to pour out his spirit on her and to comfort her and bring her the full assurance 
that she needs as she's preparing for this journey. And so here's these people back in Jesus' day that Lazarus had already died and they were bereft. They were grieving. They were filled with grief. And, and, and when he comes to Martha, he, she says, you know, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. And he's saying, well, you know, I know that, but I kind of intended for him to die. He doesn't tell her that, but he did intend that he would die. That's why he stayed back because he wanted to enlarge their faith. He wanted them to come from the doctrinal to the practical. He wanted them to come from the conceptual to the real. It's personal. For these women, it's personal. For the Jews standing around, it's personal for you and I. As we walk with the Lord, as we walk this thing out, as he brings us to places that he enlarges our faith, he makes himself very, very personal to us. We'll see that again this morning. We see his work of making it personal to them. We saw that with him raising Lazarus from the dead. And as we go on here and we get into chapter 12, we're going to see where he makes, or where Mary makes it very personal with the Lord. It's personal. We also see Judas coming into play here. We see the first words that Judas ever utters in, in the Bible narrative, and they're not good. But uh, I'm excited about teaching this. I mentioned before we're going to hit chapter 12 this morning, and this is a major shift in the Gospel of John. We've been going up for over three years of his life from the beginning of this Gospel, where it goes back to eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the word was God. And that means if you go all the way back as far as you can think and then go further back from that and then go further back from that and then further back from that, that Jesus existed. And that he was there in the creation with the Father creating and that through him all of these things came into being. Go all the way back to that out to eternity future where we're gonna be with him and we're seeing these things lived out in that span and then you could easily put our lives into that place as well. Here we are 2,000 years later, but we're still in the church age. We're still in the age of grace, the age of the Gentiles. And he's not done with us. Uh, guys, it's just so important that as we study God's word, we see our lives as tucked into the pages of this book, of these scriptures. Because this stuff is real. This is, this is the real realm. This is reality. There is so much smoke and mirrors out there, so many things to compete for our affections and our attention, but this is the stuff with which we need to stay grounded. So as we look this morning, I would just encourage you, plug in to the fact that he makes it personal. We're gonna pick it up in verse 45. Uh, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. He has just told them in verse 44, unbind him, let him go, because he'd staggered out of the grave. Uh, and then it says in verse 45, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen the things Jesus did, they believed in him. So again, this has the desired result. You think that these people believed in him before Lazarus came staggering out of the tomb. Their lives were changed. Mine would be, wouldn't yours? I mean, you're standing there, this, this guy that was very definitely dead, he maybe, you know, somebody asked me last week, they said, you know, I wonder if he still stunk. I, you know, I mean, who knows? The grave clothes would have probably still had a, a bit of a starchy thing to them. I, I don't have any idea. But that many of the Jews, they, they came, they'd come with her and, and they believed in him. Verse 46, we, and we covered these two verses last week, but I want to start here for this morning. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Uh, I remember 
last week sort of accusing these guys of being tattletales. It's like, we're going to go tell. Oh, well, good for you. But, you know, I got to thinking about this. What would they go tell the leaders? Well, the, yeah, he uh, like raised this guy from the dead, but we don't believe in him. Well, he, yeah, he did some really amazing, but, yeah, I mean, can you imagine the hardness of heart? Because that's what's driving these guys. Their hearts are hard. Their hearts are shut to the things of God. You know anybody like that? I do. Where it's like, I mean, not just a passive no thanks, but you get out of here now. I don't want to hear that Jesus stuff. Maybe you have relatives like that. Maybe they dread you coming for the holidays. <laughs> I have a few like that too. But the, yeah, that Uncle John, he's going to kind of be teach, talking about that Jesus guy. And oh my gosh, doesn't he even get a clue that we're not interested in talking? I mean, and you go through those things, don't you? I do. Like I said, what would they go tell the leaders? They're going to tell the leaders, but yeah, he raised this guy from the dead. So you need to be careful about him. Well, it says in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council as a result of this. And they said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. So they're acknowledging that he works signs. Remember, though, the two greatest periods in man's history of, of miracles on the earth was in the time of Moses. Remember all the stuff that happened in Egypt and all the stuff that happened out in the wilderness? I mean, miraculous stuff, bread every day, you know, quail, um, snakes. They didn't like that part. But, you know, I mean, there was all this stuff that went on. And then the days of Jesus, where Jesus is like, he is just one thing after another. John even says that you, you couldn't fill the books of the world with the things that Jesus did. Miraculous, marvelous things. And John tells us enough because his whole point in this gospel is to evangelize that you may believe over and over again. But so it's like these guys, they're acknowledging that he does signs, but the two most faithless generations in history are the same too. So miracles don't produce faith. They don't. Jesus knew that. Remember, we've looked at it. This is the seventh of the signs, the last great sign that Jesus does in the Gospel of John before, obviously, the resurrection is kind of a big deal. But, you know, bef before that, this is the last one. And every single time, the people's view of him goes to about here when he's saying, no, your view needs to be here. You need to see that I'm doing these things so that you recognize that the Father sent me. You recognize that I am the Messiah, that I am the one who's been promised from ages past to come and to redeem mankind, to purchase your soul. They weren't getting it. And they wouldn't get it until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so these guys get a council together. Interesting, the ruling party in those days was the Sadducees. The Sadducees, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, these guys were, they were sort of the liberal theologians of the day. Uh, you know, we conservatives kind of look at that. I don't want to polarize anybody, but um, but they were. They were very liberal in their in their mindset. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in angels. They were very hedonistic. It was all about pleasure and self. These guys were, they were just, I mean, to use modern vernacular, they were just kind of creepy. They were creepy guys. So, uh, but they were the ruling party, the puppet government that Rome set up in Israel. They were the ones that they were like, yeah, they kind of suck up to Rome because then they get what they want. Their plate is full. And then they exercised sort of this top-down hierarchical thing with the people. Never God's intention. God wanted to be the one who ruled them. Remember, ages past. 
Oh, I could rabbit trail big time on that. I'm not going to. I promise. I'm going to try really hard to get through this this morning. <laughs> but anyway, so, but these guys team up with the Pharisees. Now, these guys are sworn enemies of each other because the Pharisees were the conservative ones. They were the ones, they were so ultra conservative that they went to every jot and tittle in the law. And they were trying to make all of these, and they did. They made volumes of interpretations of God's law. And then volumes of interpretations of interpretations of God's law. I mean, they had 70 volumes by the time they were finished. These guys codified God's law to the point where God was no longer even part of it. And they called it the law of Moses, but it really wasn't anymore. Those 613 laws central to the law of Moses had, had turned into thousands upon thousands. We've looked at that before. So anyway, the Pharisees are over here, the Sadducees are over here, and they're getting together because they both hate Jesus. The ancient proverb, remember, uh, there's an ancient proverb called, it says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, Winston Churchill in World War II, when the Russians, Germany attacked Russia, and the Russians were, were coming against Germany, and the United States and Britain had they they were enemies with Russia, but they were greater enemies with Germany. And so Winston Churchill used that line. He said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and therefore he formed an alliance with Russia against the Nazis. Same kind of deal. These guys are forming an alliance now because they want very much to get Jesus out of the picture. He is really threatening their power struggle or their power base and, and he's threatening their whole deal. And we'll see that as we go along. In verse uh, 48, he says, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Interesting. The Sanhedrin, that's the ruling 70, it was actually 71 because it included the high priest. Uh, the ruling elite in Israel of that day, this is, that's the council that they've assembled. And they're, they're trying to figure out what to do with this guy because he's doing a lot of signs they're acknowledging he's doing that, but they still don't believe that he's the one. They don't want to believe, and that's really the point. Uh, and they're saying that he's going to take away both our place and our nation. They had no way of knowing at that time. I mean, these guys were so full of their thing and so full of their, their themselves, but that in their rejection of him, that they would lose both their place and their nation. When the Roman legions under Titus in 70 AD, after four years of a siege against the, the city of Jerusalem, would break through and they would just decimate the place. They did lose their place and their nation, but it wasn't because they didn't do anything with him. Had they embraced him as Lord, think about that. You know, if they'd have embraced him as Lord and he came and set up his kingdom, nobody would have been able to take that nation away. Uh, but that's, and we know that's not how it happened. But the point is, uh, they're really worried about this, and, and they're trying to figure out what to do with Jesus and the whole deal. It's very ironic. Um, they're trying to figure out, they're trying to establish guilt politically. And Jesus has absolutely no political aspirations in this whole thing. Um, Verse 49, and one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year. Now, we've talked about Caiaphas before. Caiaphas was an interesting guy. He was the son-in-law of Annas. The, he was sort of the, the very wealthy, he was probably the wealthiest guy in Israel at that time because they turned the whole temple thing into a show. We'll talk about that more next week when we look at uh, the triumphal entry and Jesus cleansing the temple for the second time. 
because he did it at the beginning of his ministry and he does it at the end. Uh, but uh, at any rate, Caiaphas, is, he's an interesting guy. He's also a Sadducee. He's a puppet of Rome. Um, he was installed by Valerius Gratus, uh, who was, a, he was the prefect of Judea before Pontius Pilate was appointed. So Pontius Pilate seceded this guy, and he was actually the high priest from A.D. 18 to 36. So this guy, Caiaphas, was a very powerful man in Israel. Uh, and it says that he was the high priest that year, and he said to them, you know nothing at all. Hmm. I, <laughs> these guys, the Sadducees, the Pharisees were nice to each other at least. I mean, they were civil. The Sadducees, not so much. These guys were very, very arrogant, and they picked at each other all the time. Uh, Josephus talks about that, and I won't go into in much detail on that, but and this is definitely one of those statements in the Scripture that you're not going to read on a Christmas card. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, John eleven forty nine. Merry Christmas. You know nothing at all. Um, but the point is, is that you, and you're not going to see this, like, mounted... Yeah. When I was in Bible college, I, I was studying 1 Corinthians, and it, and it said, you know, I was studying the part where it's actually a rebuke, where Paul says, you know, for the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, the things that God has laid up for those that love him. He's talking about unbelievers. And I remember I had this real pretty little kind of framed thing on the wall at home, and it said, for eye has not seen. It kind of romanticized the whole thing. And I, you know, young guy in my 20s, and wanted to go home and tear it off my wall. But <laughs> there are just things that people say um, <laughs> that sometimes don't sit well with you. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not, the whole, and not that the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas didn't care about whether Jesus was guilty or not guilty. He cared about losing his position. He cared about losing his wealth. Uh, I've been to Caiaphas's house. Uh, you go up a hill on Mount Zion, and on the left is Caiaphas's house, and on the right is Annas's house. It might be the opposite. But they live right across the driveway from each other, and these guys had their hand in everything. And they did not want to lose their grip on the power structure there that existed at that time. Um, now, verse 51, he says, Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So Caiaphas here, unwittingly, not knowing opens his mouth, the Holy Spirit gives him utterance. He doesn't even belong to God. And he prophesies. He doesn't realize he's prophesying. And John makes sure that, to, that we understand that. Uh, and, and Caiaphas, he was the one that really didn't know anything. I mean, he's throwing out, you guys know nothing at all. And then he goes and he prophesies immediately, not even realizing that he is talking about Messiah's future. Interesting, interesting here. Um, his, and understand that Caiaphas' prophecy is attributed to the office of high priest. That's why John makes sure to tie that in there. It's not because he was respected authority on the scripture or anything like that, but not because of the man, but because of the office. Um, 
This was truer than he could have imagined. He prophesied the death of Jesus for the Jewish nation in order to alleviate, alleviate the, their political tensions, not knowing that Jesus' death would be for the spiritual salvation of the Jewish nation and for the world. Fascinating. Now, you think about that, people that say things that, hold, that ring true, but their character is a little questionable. That happened with Balaam. Remember Balaam? Uh, he goes out and he prophesies against Israel and he prophesies truth. Uh, and, I mean, the donkey talks to him and all that. But in uh, Philippians chapter 1, uh, Paul says, Some preach Christ out of envy, envy uh, selfish ambition, uh, contention. And Paul says, I rejoice that Christ is preached. It, it, it's just interesting to me that God often uses others without their knowledge. And these people were doing just that. They were fulfilling perfectly the plan of God from the ages past that God had foreordained these things take place. Being a part of it and even speaking truth into it. And yet their hearts were just immersed in evil as they did. So it says here, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. And therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into a country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there he remained with his disciples. So this is the atmosphere uh, within which chapter 12 takes place. This is a politically charged atmosphere. The people have, the, the hostility has gone from just simply the priests gritting, gritting their teeth and you know, setting their jaws against Jesus to now the leaders, the leadership of Israel has gotten together and, and they are, actively after him now not just opposing him but now they're after him and and, and we're going into the last week of Jesus's life as, as we have forwarded here remember in chapter 10 we were six months out at the Feast of Tabernacles and then chapter 11 with the guy that was born blind that Jesus healed we're three months out well now uh, we've come up to uh, the last week of the Lord's life here on this earth and so so much of the Gospel of John, I mentioned last week, I love this part of this Gospel. It is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Things get very intense, they get very heated up, and he will be in the temple courts daily, teaching, squaring off against the religious leaders, and whenever they want to lay hands on him, he just walks out. Why? Because he knows his hour has not yet come. And so, uh, very charged atmosphere. So as he knows this, he, withdraw, he withdraws uh, to this place called Ephraim. We're gonna look at a couple of maps here. Uh, the first one is, uh, it, it shows basically what Israel looks like in those days. And it was separated into three different districts. Uh, the northerly most was Galilee. That's where Jesus was born, raised, where he conducted most of his ministry at Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee there. Uh, and then Samaria in the middle. That was a place that the Jews, they would not, the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they would not step foot in Samaria because they figured that even if a speck of dust got on their sandal, that they would be defiled. They would be ceremonially unclean. They hated each other. The Samaritans and, and the Jews, a long history, over 700 years of enmity between the two of them, they did not get along. And then in the southern area, there's Judea. And so zooming up a little bit, the next slide uh, shows, basically you see these 
four areas. We show Ephraim to the north, and nobody knows exactly where Ephraim is. As some say that it was in the wilderness of Judea, but we do know that there was a town called Ephraim here at one time, near Bethel, where Abraham was and all that. But here in the first century, it's likely that Jesus headed north and he went to Ephraim. Would he have protection from the Jews there? Yeah, if he crossed over into Samaria, he would, because they wouldn't go there. Uh, so again, speculation, don't know exactly, but uh, let's go one more up and just zoom up right up on the area here. So here's Ephraim up to the north of, of Jerusalem, and you can see where Bethany is in proximity to Jerusalem. It's only two miles away. And then uh, Bethabara, or, or Bethany beyond the Jordan, uh, there uh, on your looking to the right over on, just on the other side of the Jordan River, probably very close to, if not the same place. Uh, we know it was the place where Jesus started his ministry, but it was probably also the place where Joshua led the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. Uh, there was a natural place, uh, they call it the place of the ford, uh, the place to cross the river there, and uh, that was known traditionally anyway to the Jews as the place where Israel crossed into the land. Uh, at any rate, I do that again, you guys know that I, I, I really like to tie these stories to a geographical place because it, it, it just fleshes them out. It becomes less abstract in our minds to be able to look and say that really happened and that's where it happened. Um, you don't have to go to Israel. I mean, I love that nation. I love going there. I've been there a couple times and it's been great going to some of these places, but uh, the next best thing is to just be able to identify these places and to know that they're actual places that really exist and, and it helps us to understand and to walk by faith in the fact that these events really took place. So, verse 55, in the Passover, the Jews was near and many went from the country up to, the, to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. One of the required feasts, remember we looked at that, there were three feasts that were required. And, and that if you, were, if you were a good Jewish family, you went. Uh, especially if you lived within, I think it was 20 miles or whatever it was. But uh, these would be pilgrimage feasts and, and the Passover was a big deal. Is, or Jerusalem would swell from being uh, I don't know, I, I read the, the population, but from being a, you know, an average city in the first century wasn't very big, and it would swell to probably a million and a half people on some of these feasts. Uh, I was reading the calculations for how many lambs would be slaughtered on an average Passover, and it was just an enormous number. But this is a big deal for these people, and Jesus, being the Lamb of God, uh, is going to be the Passover lamb this year. He knows his hour is coming. The people don't, generally. And so it's just a very interesting time. So these people are going up. There are lots of mikvahs. If you've ever been to the temple on the southern slope of the temple, there is a hillside that's just covered with ceremonial baths where the people could come and they could purify before they went in to offer at the temple. And so they're going to purify themselves and to go into the temple and to do business there. So this would be his last Passover, obviously. Uh, we'll talk about that more next week. Verse 56, and they saw Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple saying, what do you think? That he'll, uh, will he not come to the feast? Uh, interesting, they knew there was a lot of buzz going on about Jesus at this point. I mean, he had become immensely popular. Excuse me, and, and 
there was sort of a mortal contest of wills going on between him and the religious leaders. I mean, these guys squared off more than once, as we've seen. And uh, Jesus had some very direct things to say to them. And they would get more direct as this week went on. Uh, I love reading that in Matthew, towards the end of Matthew, where he pronounces these, the woes on the religious leaders and their establishment. I mean, that is just hammer down. Uh, very serious time for these guys. Uh, anyway, the people knew. And, and so there's this, this buzz that's going on, and they're wondering, they're speculating. Well, do you think he'll come? Do you think he'll come to the feast? There was an edict out. He basically had essentially a bounty on his head at this point. This is now at verse 57. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command. They had given an edict, that's what it's called, that if anyone knew where he was, that he should report it and they might seize him. Uh, of course, we know that Judas would be the one who would identify where he was and they would seize him, but not because they were taking him by force. When we get to that point in the Gospel of John, awesome scene in the garden when Judas betrays him with a kiss and Jesus says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he says, I am. Yeah, I know it says he in there, but it's in italics. They add that for clarification. I think it messes it up. But the point is, is, is when he says, I am, the whole Roman cohort is knocked backwards and they land on their rear ends. Why? Because Jesus is demonstrating, you're not taking me by force. He knew that his hour had come, that it was time for him to take the cup of suffering. And he went voluntarily. Uh, I remember a t-shirt that a friend of mine had years ago. It said that nails didn't hold Jesus to the cross, love did. And that's true. That's very true. So they've, they've basically, Jesus is a wanted man at this point. Uh, and, and that's the scene as we enter chapter 12, verse 1. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Remember, he's been up in Ephraim and uh, sort of staying away. And he wasn't foolish about his own safety. I mean, he knew these guys were after him. And, and yeah, he had the, the ability to walk right through them when he wanted to, but he just cleared out for a while. Well, remember, though, this is not very long after he raised Lazarus from the dead. He left Bethany, and then he came back to Bethany. And it's very interesting to me that he just left for a short time. But think about the buzz that would have been happening in Bethany in his absence. He raised Lazarus. Look, there's Lazarus. He was dead. I saw the body. I mean, you know, think about what would have been going on and what would have happened in, in that small, very small community there on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives uh, in that few weeks that Jesus was gone. Uh, he would have gained a lot of notoriety during that time. And so uh, it says that six days before the Passover, he comes to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. So starting this final week. Now, Jesus goes, we're told in the other gospels that Jesus goes to the house of another one of his friends, a guy by the name of Simon the leper. Okay, and I want to qualify that. Nobody's going to, he's going to go to a dinner in his honor, but if somebody that I knew had leprosy and invited me to come to a dinner at their house to honor me, I, I'd probably tell them really not too comfortable with that. Uh, leprosy is a very contagious disease, so uh, it's fair to assume that Simon the leper is Simon the used-to-be leper. <laughs> and so he's invited to this guy's house, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there. So is all of his men. So, I mean, there's like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So 
There's a bunch of people here. And, and, and think about it. I mean, there's Simon, there's Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Jesus, 12 guys, and then whoever else is with him. And Martha, no doubt, would be helping to serve. I mean, they obviously were close friends. And uh, so he walks into this scene. Now, I want to I point one thing out. This is not Simon the Pharisee from, uh, from Galilee, okay? Uh, there's a, a story uh, in the Gospels that, that Jesus goes to the home of Simon the Pharisee, and there's a woman from the town that's a notorious sinner. And she does something very similar with Jesus here. Uh, it's not the Mary that we're talking about now. She's unnamed. Um, the woman anoints Jesus' feet with an ointment. She continually kisses his feet and wipes them with her tears and her hair. Uh, and then Simon, the Pharisee, is thinking to himself, right? He's not saying it out loud. Thinking he's keeping, And Jesus reads his thoughts. He says, he's thinking if this guy were a prophet, he'd know what manner of woman this is that's touching him. You know, he, because again, oh, this filthy sinner, this woman. And, and, and Jesus, knowing what Simon's thinking, he says, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, Simon, he who is forgiven much will love much. He tells him a parable. Again, I'm not going to teach the whole thing there. Um, and he says, when I came, you didn't wash my feet. Uh, and you didn't give me a kiss, which was customary in, in their culture. Uh, you didn't anoint my head with oil. You did none of the welcoming customary things. And look at what this woman has done. I think it's worth pointing out, here we have one woman, probably from a good home, uh, Mary, Martha and Lazarus' sister. Uh, we know that she's probably the, the one that, that really thinks about things, the, the one that takes things to heart. Uh, Martha, it, it would have been an interesting crowd. I mean, you know, here's Simon, had leprosy, cured. Uh, here's Lazarus, he was dead. Uh, here's Martha, she's kind of grumpy. And, and I mean, the, the crowd that would have been there at dinner that night would have been an interesting bunch for a dinner party. Uh, wouldn't have been a boring dinner party at all. So uh, it's interesting, though, thinking about this woman that Simon the Pharisee dealt with, that Jesus dealt with in Galilee. Both of these women were respected greatly by Jesus. Both of these women blessed Jesus. Both of these women worshipped Jesus, and he received their worship. Same devotion, different women, different backgrounds. One from a good home, the other probably a prostitute, uh, a notorious sinner. Um, the, the interesting thing is they both show great depth of character, spiritual character, and they both stand up to criticism, and both of them are honored. So here they are. There's a, there is, again, as I mentioned, there's a price on Jesus' head at this point. And so these guys are going to have a dinner party for him. This, there would be some great personal risk in here for Simon and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Uh, they would be basically going against what the religious establishment had put forward. If you see this guy, tell us because we're going to seize him. Jewish tradition says, by the way, that Simon was the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There's nothing in the Bible that proves that out. But uh, interesting, though, uh, one of the things I think about with Lazarus, he'd had some time to dwell on what had happened to him. The people around him had had some time to dwell. Do you think that, I think it's fair to say, rather than put that as a question, I'll just make a statement. That for Lazarus, his relationship with Jesus, it had been personal before. I'll bet it was deeply personal now. For Mary, for Martha, 
Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died for the Jews that had been around. All of them had the same response. That was before he raised Lazarus from the dead, before he showed that he had power over death. The greatest enemy of humanity. These people's lives were changed. And as a result, Jesus became very personal to them. Yeah, for Lazarus, it was personal. Uh, I don't believe that he ever looked at things the same way. I mean, how could you? Jesus resurrected his friend because for him, it's personal. Think about it. When Jesus performed the other miracles here in the Gospel of John, changing water into wine, healing the nobleman's, the official son, remember, at Cana. Uh, then he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He fed the multitude, remember, the loaves and the fishes. Walked on the water, gave sight to a blind man. And then something different when he raised Lazarus from the dead. None of those people were named. The guy at the pool of Bethesda is not named. The, the guy that he had been blind from birth, he's not named. Part of what Jesus was doing in this, I'm convinced, uh, I believe it comes out, it seeps out of the text here, uh, and I don't think I'm overreaching, is that he was indeed making it personal. Lazarus is a friend. And, and the question comes to me, would he do less for me? Would he do less for you? on this side of the cross than he did for Lazarus. Oh, well, maybe you haven't seen him raise anybody from the dead. I don't doubt that he still can and probably does. I think a lot of the times when people in sort of these kind of weird circles put that forward, I'd like to see some proof. But I think legitimately, Jesus is still in the miracle working business. He is, still, uh, he is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And perhaps he hasn't done that, but I have seen miracles in my life. So would he do less for me than he did for his friend there? It says that he no longer calls me servant, a servant, but a friend. The same for you. Jesus is taking these events and he is driving them home in these people's hearts and lives personally. You gotta catch this. Verse two, and they made him a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So we see here a beautiful picture Mary worships, Martha serves, and Lazarus, just by sitting there, he would, his life was a testimony. Uh, it's a great picture of the Christian life. There's a place for worship, there's a place for service, and there's a place for simply letting your life be a testimony to others of the power of God. I can't imagine the conversations, uh, and here, Mary, with this act, with this simple act of worship, she understood culturally what they did in those days. The order, sort of the, the pecking order in someone's home was the owner of the home was the master of the home. 
And, and, and then under him were stewards. They were men or women who were charged with carrying out the management of that home. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I give to you the keys to the kingdom. That was a stewardship term. He was giving his men stewardship of the kingdom of God. And so when he did that, he was essentially saying, you are stewards over my house because I'm going to be going away on a journey. I'm going to be leaving. And what happened in those days is when the master of the house went on a journey, he would appoint stewards over his stuff. They would protect his stuff. They would take care of it until he came back. There's some great parables that talk about all of that. Not going to belabor those this morning. But so there's the master and then there's a steward. And then below the steward would be servants. And these would be people uh, who were appointed to serve and to carry out different functions. Maybe some took care of the property, some did this, some did that. But then under the servants would be the slaves. Okay, so master, steward, servant, slave. Bottom of the bunch. That's the one that took care of washing the feet. The slaves were the ones that took the, the most menial, the lowest task. And so here's Mary with a heart filled with love for the Lord. Once again, yeah, she'd been here before. We saw it just last chapter when Jesus showed up in, in, in Bethany. There she was at his feet. We also know that when Martha gets upset and she says, Jesus, you've got to come and tell Mary, you get my sister in here. All she's doing is sitting there at your feet. And, and again, Mary spends a lot of time at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because she values the intimacy of the relationship that she has with him, and she, that is an act of worship for her. Uh, she has a deep and abiding love for him. So she goes to the lowest point. She assumes the most humble point, the most humble position in the house. She not only pours out, now this vial of spikena, the oil of spikena, probably from India, it was a, it, it was a rare oil, it was something that was very, very valuable. We see here that Judas says, well, hey, she should have sold it for 300 denarii. That's 300 days wage. So you could look at this as having a value roughly of a year's wages. So, and I don't know why Mary is carrying around a bottle of perfume worth 30 or 40,000 bucks in today's economy, but she is. And she takes it and she pours the whole thing out on Jesus. If you look in the other gospels, she started with his head, she ended with his feet, and then she wiped his feet with her hair. What a beautiful act of worshiping. You know, in that culture, women didn't let down their hair. That was reserved for the most intimate of times. And I'm not saying she had that kind of a relationship. I wouldn't even begin to go there. But, but she had a very intimate relationship with Jesus as Lord. Her friendship with him was, was very, very close. And that she put, let her hair down, which was, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, a woman's glory is her hair. So she lets that down and she literally spreads the perfume all over his feet with her hair. What a beautiful, intimate act of worship. And I want to take a few minutes here and divert. Um, and I want to talk about worship. It's important, guys, that we understand what worship is but I'm gonna start with what worship isn't. Um, first of all, and, and this is sort of meant to catch you, worship is not the songs that I sing. Worship is not my giving. 
Worship is not my service to the Lord. Now, before anybody gets up and walks out, let me qualify that. These are acts of worship, but they're driven by an attitude of the heart. When Mary did the oil thing with Jesus, the oil wasn't the worship. It was what sprang forth from her heart that manifested as an act of worship. Understand that. It's sort of like when we talk about sin. Sin is not the act. I love what Chuck Smith used to say about sin. He'd say, you know, a a horse thief, what is it that makes a man a horse thief? And of course, we in our natural minds think, well, stealing horses. No. He had to be a horse thief in order to steal the horse. The moment that the thought was conceived and acted upon in his mind, he's a horse thief. Now he's going to go carry out the act. Sort of the same thing, but on a much more positive note, (laughs) with worship. The act itself is an act of worship, but it comes from the heart. I found a great definition for worship, uh, and it's uh, actually it was from Webster's 1828 Dictionary. And yes, it's online. Look it up. And I thought this is a great Definition of worship. Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. That is exactly what Mary is doing. She's loving Jesus with an extravagant love. And her act of submission, her act of going low, which is something, by the way, that each of us is called to do in the Christian life. It's not about going higher. It's about going lower. It's about esteeming one another is more important than ourselves. It's about serving God through serving others. It's it's about being a servant. We'll talk about that more in the next chapter when Jesus talks about servanthood in in John chapter 13. Beautiful passage and we're gonna stop and we're we're gonna really take that apart because it's really, really important that we understand that this thing is not about me. It's about him and my worship to him is about him. It's not about me. It's not about my songs. It's not about my service. It's not about my money or my my time, treasure, talents, my giving. Those are things that are a manifestation of a heart that is towards him in extravagant love and extreme submission. That's what worship is. The purpose of my life is not to serve God, but to enjoy fellowship with him. Remember, that is very, very important that we get that right. We were created for fellowship with God. That is God's design. That was God's design in the garden that was spoiled with the fall of man. That is God's design now with Jesus as the second Adam, as he sets everything right, opens the door for full-blown fellowship with God, which we enjoy having done business with him as far as his work at the cross, which now we have the ability to freely come and to worship. So true worship is this. It's defined by the priority we place on who God in Christ is in our lives and where God is on our list of priorities. That's worship. Folks, you will always act on what you believe. Universal principle never fails. You will always act on what you believe. And if you believe that Jesus is the most valuable possession that you could ever have, bar none, you'll act on it. And your life will reflect worship. 
It's where you put the value. Worth-ship. How much is he worth to you? He was worth everything to Mary. She, that, you know, that was either a, a huge investment or it was her dowry. And she spent it all. She poured it out. She literally poured it out for him. That was worship. True worship also, in bottom line, it's a matter of the heart expressed through a lifestyle of holiness. True worship is a matter of the heart expressed through a lifestyle of holiness. What do you mean, Pastor John, holiness? When I gave my life to Christ, I was declared holy. I was sanctified. Sanctus is the Latin word, it's the Latin word for holy. And so having been sanctified by his blood, I am already declared by declaration, I am holy. I am a holy one. What a miraculous, tremendous transaction that is. I walk in that. And now in my life, as he is conforming me to the image of his son, as I am learning, like read the, your bulletin, as I'm learning to think like Jesus, as I go along, as I grow, he is conforming me to the image of his son and I am being made more into his likeness and my behavior, my thoughts, words, deeds are becoming sanctified. He is changing me. He is transforming my life. By his grace, that's the work that he does. What does he ask of me? To yield. Just yield. Just give him my heart. Extra extravagant love. Extreme submission. That's what he calls each of us to. And it shows up through my life being conformed to his. Through me being conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 29. Beautiful passage. And that, is take, that takes shape in my life as I learn the value of going low. All of this, it's just beautiful. What, what Mary is doing here in this passage is absolutely breathtaking. And you don't have to, I mean, we don't have the availability to pour oil out or to pour a, a huge deal out on the feet of Jesus physically. But ask the Lord to search your heart. What are ways that you can worship him? What are ways that you can simply pour it out for him? And perhaps you're already doing that. If so, praise God. There's just such a blessing in that. And I'm not, I'm not making this a weird head trip thing. I mean, his grace is free, covers my life, my response to his grace, my response to his love, my response to him giving me eternity in his presence as I simply want to honor him with my life. Beautiful expression of worship. Personal practical holiness is what we're talking about here. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, we read this. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Look carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, uh, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. In other words, guard your hearts. Allow his character to manifest in your life. Hebrews 12. Allow his character to manifest in your life, in, in servanthood, in esteeming others is more important, in, in serving him through serving others, in being focused on the welfare of others as opposed to your own. Allowing holiness to take shape in your life. 
Christ-like character. That's what that means. Mary worships Jesus here for one reason. For her, it was personal. It's personal. That's why the Lord calls us personally. That's why the body of Christ is not a group that's just a big glob. It's a group of individuals. We comprise the body of Christ because we have chosen to be identified with him. And he has chosen to be identified among us. Beautiful transaction. Back to verse three. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Uh, I would imagine, how long would it be before Mary washed her hair? I don't know, but that would have been a, a tremendous scene. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, uh, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? As I mentioned, these are Judas' first recorded words. And Mary, you know, she gets criticized each time or misunderstood uh, the three accounts. She was criticized by Martha. She's, she was misunderstood by the people that thought she was going to the, the tomb to weep there. And now here's Judas with a critical spirit. Oh, be careful of that, gang. A critical spirit will kill fellowship. A critical spirit will kill relationships. And why not rather simply die to your own urging or your need to be right, your need to make sure that your voice is heard and simply humble out and allow Christ to be shown in your life. Ver Judas said this, says in verse six, this, he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put into it. The word thief there is kleptes. It's where we get the word klepto, like kleptomaniac. <laughs> It doesn't mean the guy's a bank robber. It means that he's a sneak. And that's what this word means, that he was a sneak. Uh, basically, he's say, it's saying here that he, he pilfered the money. He said that because he was a pilferer. He snuck the money out of the box. Verse 7, but Jesus said, let her alone. She's kept this for the day of my burial. You know, it, it, you ever hear people kind of characterize Jesus as like kind of this kind of just so meek and mild. Judas doesn't get this out of his mouth before Jesus rebukes him. And he says, leave her alone, Judas. I mean, there's some firmness in this statement and for good reason. He's prophesying she's kept this for my burial. She didn't even know. Again, she doesn't know that she is doing this for his burial. She just is doing this as an act of worship. Her life was completely turned upside down just a few weeks ago when her brother, brother walked out of that tomb. So Jesus was firm to, with her. And, and then verse eight, he says, for the poor you'll always have with you, but me you do not have always. You know, Judas was the product of his own choices. He's called the son of perdition for a reason. And for him, it was personal. And God takes those choices personally as well. Because he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. You know, when I was in Bible college, I heard a, a, a joke. And I used to tell this. And it was, you know, a biblical proof that, that men get to women 
um, first, or men get to heaven first. And it was in Revelation chapter eight, one, it says, and there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I would laugh and think that was fun. And it is, it's kind of humorous. But then I studied the book of Revelation and I realized that the reason for that silence is anything but funny. It's because it is on the verge of the wrath of God being poured out on humanity. Sobering. Jesus honors Mary with a memorial. We, we see that in the other gospels. Uh, and he says, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, this will be spoken of. And, and we're living proof of that. Here we are speaking of it this morning. Uh, it's the only memorial of its kind. I guess to wrap it up, guys, uh, Mary hadn't been with Jesus for all these three years. He, she hadn't seen all the miracles. She hadn't seen all of his teaching. She hadn't experienced the things the guys had experienced. She wasn't one of the 70 that went out and, and all of that. But when she had time, she sat quietly at his feet. I just imagine the exchange between them uh, as, as close friends, a deep relationship one that generated worship in Mary's heart. Uh, she knew his heart very well. And she worshiped him with an extravagant love and deep submission. What a beautiful story. What a beautiful account. Looking in the earlier account in, in chapter 11 of Lazarus being raised from the dead because Jesus made it personal. And then seeing here in chapter 12 where Mary pours it out, literally pours it out for Jesus. Why? Because she makes it personal. Her response to him is personal. Our response to him is personal. He knows you by name. He knows everything you ever thought, said, or have done. And still he loves you with a radical love. And the only response, gang, if all we did when we came down here on Sunday morning was worship, you want to know something? That would be enough. The only response to the work that he's done, Mary had it right, is worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, uh, this brief look into the lives of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And at this look at uh, the workings of our Lord is now we're focused on this last week of his life on earth. Uh, some look at it as the end and yet we see it as the beginning of, of the doors of heaven swinging open wide that you would embrace all who would come. We thank you, Lord, for your work. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love poured out. And Lord, thank you for your, just this beautiful aspect of your word I pray, Father, for each one here that as we go out that door and embrace the week ahead, that you would bring to our remembrance the things we've looked at here this morning. And by your Holy Spirit, speak to us, woo us, inform our thinking, enlarge our hearts. Lord, may we be those people that love you with an extravagant love, that we're submitted to your will in our lives with a, a deep submission. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us first. And in that, we love you. We commit this time to you. We commit ourselves afresh to you. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name.
And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Have a great week.